Ninja Nerds, today on our podcast, we are going to be discussing Strokes, episode 12. This is actually a special episode because May is Stroke Month. It's all about stroke awareness. So please continue to spread that awareness on strokes and continue to follow all of the guidelines and information we're going to be presenting on today. According to the CDC, each year, nearly 800,000 people in the U.S. have a stroke. And this is U.S. data. This isn't even the world. Uh, a couple more facts for you. Every 40 seconds, someone in the U.S. has a stroke, and every three and a half minutes, someone dies of a stroke. As you all know, Zach will be getting into the nitty-gritty of this uh, podcast, but always remember, fast, face drooping, arm weakness, speech difficulty, and T for time to call 911. Please don't forget we have already covered acute ischemic stroke, ischemic versus hemorrhagic stroke, and stroke syndromes on our YouTube channel. Each of the links will be included within this episode's description. Also, before we get started, make sure to go on ninjaner.org because we're literally following on our acute ischemic stroke notes. We're gonna be following along the entire time and it's really helpful sometimes if you have notes with you and you can really not get lost with all the details here. It's gonna be pretty helpful for you. So go ahead and check that out. Uh, Zach, let's get into this, man. Let's get into this monster of an episode and do justice for Stroke Month. You feeling all right? Oh, yeah, man. This First off, thanks for those facts. It was actually pretty crazy to hear about some of those things, about the fatalities or the mortality from this and how many people suffer from a stroke you know, every year. And that, th- thanks for checking out those, those numbers. That was actually absolutely insane. But yeah, this topic is like near and dear to my heart. Being that I work in a neuroscience ICU, I see a lot of patients who develop acute ischemic strokes. And so it's something I think that we can really talk about in, in a great amount of detail. It's going to be a beast um, of a topic. Um, so definitely highly agree with you, Rob. Get those notes out because I'm going to be using them because there's so much information to talk about today. But when we dive into acute ischemic stroke, just first off, what is a stroke? It's basically this period where the brain tissue, the cerebral tissue is not getting enough oxygen nutrients, whether that be due to some kind of clot, whether it be an emboli, a thrombus, not getting enough perfusion because the blood pressure is low, whatever it is, there's a decreased perfusion to the actual brain tissue. Over time, whenever that tissue isn't getting the oxygen, the nutrients that it needs, it develops this period of what's called ischemia. Now, that ischemia is very important because time is brain. The longer that you actually stay in this ischemic period, the longer the time that the tissue starts to struggle to be able to survive, it can then die. As the tissue dies, we then develop infarct. So that's one of the problems with acute ischemic strokes is that as you infarct particular tissue or cause the death of neurological tissue, you can obviously lead to particular neurodeficits that we'll talk about depending upon like the vascular territory that's affected. And that we'll get into that in the stroke syndrome part. But basically, when we talk about strokes, there's many different kind of like pathophysiological or causative factors that are important to this. And I think one of the big things here is when you're talking about these, think about them in categories. So embolic causes, thrombotic causes, like global cerebral ischemia. And then there's a couple other like super rare miscellaneous ones that we'll get into as well. But we talk about embolic causes that this is generally whenever you flick off a piece of a clot. Usually there was a thrombus that was maybe sitting somewhere within the uh, like a vessel or the heart that popped off a little piece of it. And then it just freely circulated throughout your vasculature, got stuck in one of the cerebral vessels, caused ischemia over time, led to infarction of the brain tissue. So what are some embolic causes? Think about embolic causes coming from the heart. So we call these like cardiac emboli or cardioembolic causes. One of the most common ones out there is atrial fibrillation. So if a patient has atrial fibrillation, that's a big one. Another one is if they have like a left ventricular thrombus, that would be one, like if a big clot sitting in the actual like cavity of the left ventricle. Or there's another one here, which you can actually have heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction. So whenever your heart failure patients who have that reduced EF, their systolic function is really low, they're not able to get blood out of their heart. And so there's a stasis of blood flow there, which causes an increased risk of clots that can be formed according to what's called Virgo's triad. The other one, really nasty one, hopefully you never have to see these, but it's a possibility, is that if someone has infective endocarditis and they form 
form these like nasty microbial vegetations on their valves, especially like the mitral valve or the, the uh, aortic valve. Pieces of those actual septic emboli can break off, get stuck in one of the cerebral vessels and cause a stroke. This is actually could be a nasty one. The other one is that sometimes not as super common, but if you have like a lot of fibrinous inflammatory, like fibrogenic material on the actual valves, particularly the mitral valve, the aortic valves, some of those can actually break off and can actually get stuck in the vessels. And the last one here is like mechanical heart valve. So if anybody has like a mechanical aortic valve or like a mechanical like uh, mitral valve and they're on anticoagulants, but maybe they're not super compliant with it. In general, you are very, very at risk of like emboli in these situations because mechanical valves are super thrombogenic. So if you form a clot on those mechanical valves and break off a piece of it, boom, you get an emboli that can get stuck in a cerebral vessel. So think about your cardioembolic causes. I think one of the most important ones, most common ones is your atrial fibrillation though. The other one is your arterial to arterial emboli. So this may seem crazy, but maybe you have like some plaques um, or thrombi uh, that's actually formed within like a part of the vessels that supply the brain. So think about it. Maybe it's not in the actual heart itself. So it's not in the left atrium. It's not in the left ventricle. It's not off the actual valves of the mitral or the aortic valve. It's coming off. Maybe it's like within the aortic arch. So you have a plaque there within the aortic arch and you break off a piece of the plaque that's in the aortic arch and it rushes up through the carotid artery, gets stuck in one of the anterior posterior circulations. Boom, you develop a stroke. The other one is if it gets, you have a plaque stuck in like an internal carotid artery. So you have a plaque developing within like the internal carotid artery and boom, you break off a piece of the plaque and it floats up and gets stuck in like the MCA. That it would be an example of like an artery to artery emboli. So big things to think about there. So a piece of a plaque gets dislodged, breaks a piece of it off. It's now an embolus, gets stuck in a cerebral vessel. You don't get any blood flow beyond that embolus. And then you have ischemia, prolonged time, infarction, and then you start seeing the neurodeficits. The other embolic cause here could be what's called paradoxical emboli. And it's paradoxical because it's generally something that it's weird. Usually if you have a patient who have as a venous clot, like a DVT, those generally would not cause cerebral embolems, uh, emboli. So you wouldn't develop a clot within a cerebral vessel. You'd more likely develop a clot within like a pulmonary vessel, like the pulmonary artery. But in patients who develop like DVTs and they have what's called like a patent foramen ovale or like they're relatively rare, but an atrial septal aneurysm, they have like a hole. They have a connection between their right atrium to left atrium. So if you have a DVT, the clot comes up right into the inferior vena cava, goes into the right atrium, whoop, goes right over into the left atrium through the PFO or the atrial septal aneurysm. Then you can get it down to the left ventricle, pop it up to the aorta, pop it up through the carotid or the posterior like vertebral circulation, get it stuck there. Again, ischemia, infarction of the tissue. So those are big ones to think about as well. But that would be your kind of embolic causes, your cardioembolic, your artery to emboli and your paradoxical emboli. All right. So we talked about embolic causes. The other one here is the thrombotic causes. So you have a big plaque within like a large vessel. So large vessel atherosclerosis with these kinds of situations, if you have a big plaque within the vessel wall, right? Let's just say that it's within the carotid artery. So you have like a, a big clot that's within the ICA, like right after the bifurcation of the common carotid artery. So this could actually be like a carotid stenosis of so a big carotid stenosis, or you have a big plaque within like the vertebral arteries or the basilar artery, or in like the stem of the MCA just before it breaks into the, um, you have what's called the MCA, the M1, right before it breaks into the M2 portions or the M2 branches, you can form like these big plaques there. So if you have a big plaque there, the problem with that and so let's say that you rip off a top layer of the plaque. Underneath that, you have like the atheromatous material that's like super thrombogenic. So platelets will love to stick to that plaque. And whenever they stick to it, they can actually lead to, again, this like 
big kind of like occlusion of the vessel that leads to a significant decreased blood flow beyond that thrombus. And then again, you develop ischemia from decreased oxygen and nutrient delivery. Over time, this can lead to infarction and therefore neurodeficits. So the big things to think about for like large vessel atherosclerosis is a very specific risk factor. So having hypertension um, that's uncontrolled, diabetes that's uncontrolled, hyperlipidemia, so having super high LDL levels, triglyceride levels, et cetera, not taking your statins. Smoking is a big one and, and elderly, so the high age, right? So an increasing age, that would be definite superior risk factors for atherosclerosis. So that'd be the big thing. Now for the small vessel atherosclerosis, sometimes you can see these with like your lacunar infarcts. So if you have like your lenticular striate vessels, these are the ones that come right off of the M1, the M1 portion of the MCA, and they go in to supply the basal ganglia, the internal capsules, and the corona radiata, the caudate nucleus. Sometimes what can happen is you can develop little like a um, plaque development and atherosclerosis, arteriosclerosis of those tiny little vessels where it actually decreases the blood flow to the actual basal ganglia, the internal capsule, the corona radiata, leading to ischemia over time infarction. So these are the big things for your thrombotic causes. It's again, big one, large vessel athero. This can definitely be a big one within like the ICA or the vertebrobasilar system or like the MCA just before it bifurcates. And then your small vessel athero, think about the, like the tiny lenticular strites that supply your basal ganglia, uh, your internal capsule and your corona radiata. So these would be the thrombotic causes, Rob. The next one to think about here is like, if you have like a really nasty one, it's like global cerebral ischemia. So if a patient has like systemic hypoperfusion, so let's say that for whatever reason, they're in a, a shock state, they have cardiogenic shock, they have obstructive shock, they have septic shock, whatever it is, they're actually having a decreased perfusion to the brain. Their mean arterial pressures are super low. If that happens, where you're not perfusing the brain, there's a decrease in cerebral perfusion. You're not giving oxygen. You're not giving nutrients to the brain tissue. This can lead to ischemia. And then over time, you can lead to infarction. But the common areas for this one is when you have global cerebral ischemia is it causes these things called watershed infarcts. And so watershed areas are basically the regions of the brain that's kind of situated furthest away from the like the supplying blood vessels. And because of this, they are most susceptible to infarction due to having that low cerebral actual perfusion from very very, very low blood pressure. Oh, another scenario where you can actually see this, Rob, is not just in shock states, is actually whenever somebody has like a really, really bad carotid artery stenosis, and on top of that, they're hypotensive. Like if you have a drop in blood pressure for whatever reason, and on top of that, you have a big, big carotid stenosis. Now you have this already issue here where you have a decrease in oxygen supply because you have a big stenosis that's reducing blood supply to the brain. And on top of that, if they're hypotensive, you even reduce the supply even more that can actually cause this nasty cerebral ischemia. So that's a big one. The other one here, besides like a global cerebral ischemia from hypoperfusion, is if you have like a severe and prolonged like hypoxic event. So if someone went into like a, a acute respiratory failure. And because of that, they have a decreased oxygen content in the blood due to like some type of like VQ mismatch. They get less oxygen that's actually delivered to the brain despite like having an adequate perfusion. They can again have some infarction, but of those watershed areas. And those are kind of like the distal areas of like the MCA ACA territory, like kind of where they're close to one another or like the uh, MCA PCA territory as well. The last one here is not just like the prolonged hypoxia from like acute respiratory failure, but obviously one of the big ones here is like, you know, cardiopulmonary arrest. Whenever somebody actually like has a cardiac arrest and they have this period of where they're actually having a mixture of kind of like hypoperfusion because the heart's not pumping. And on top of that, they're also super hypoxic because their lungs aren't drawing in any air. This can result in like a very significant infarction and a stroke if not corrected as well. So that would be the big ones there. So we got, again, our embolic causes. We got our thrombotic causes. And then we have the cerebral hypoperfusion. And this particularly, I would remember that these can cause those watershed infarcts. So infarcts right in between 
between the MCA ACA territory or between like the MCA PCA territory. Those are generally the common ones. The other causes that are kind of mixed in with this kind of has a couple subgroups, if you will. So you can have a patient who can develop strokes within these arteries, whether it be due to a hypercoagulable state or inflammation of the vessels, like a vasculitity or an arterial dissection. So whenever you have a patient who has a hypercoagulable state, usually hypercoagulable states more likely cause venous clots. But if you have someone who has like a really like significant, like a thrombophilia, potentially there's a possibility of it, like a factor five Leiden, antithrombin three deficiency, a protein CNS deficiency, prothrombin gene mutations. Um, maybe I think one of the big ones is like a, having like an antiphospholipid syndrome, like a catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome out of all of these hypercoagulable states. That would probably be the one that I actually would consider. Um, hit heparin induced thrombocytopenia. That would definitely be another one as well. I would actually lean towards less likely for the other ones that we just mentioned, like the factor five lied and antithrombin three protein CS deficiency and prothrombin G mutation. But I definitely would be on high alert if somebody had again, antiphospholipid syndrome or hit. Another one is malignancy. So if patients have a malignancy, they have a hypercoagulable state and that also can put them at high risk of forming uh, arterial clots. So yeah, with the hypercoagulable states, I would lean more likely, Rob, towards like, again, your antiphospholipid syndrome, especially if it's a catastrophic type, hit and malignancies. For the other ones that are within these other causes of the, this category, we can think about vasculitis. So inflammation of the blood vessel. If we have inflammation of these arteries, sometimes it can cause endothelial cell dysfunction. And that can actually, again, lead to a clot that forms on these vasculitic vessels. But also if your vessels are inflamed, they're a little bit more narrow. And so you can see these in like autoimmune disorders like giant cell, Takayasu's. Sometimes you can see this in infectious lesions. Again, I wouldn't go too far down this road, but like things like tuberculosis and syphilis and varicella zoster virus, or just you have like a primary CNS vasculitis without any underlying cause. But that's the basic concept with these. The other one in the last category here is arterial dissection. So this is actually a relatively common one. So if somebody has a dissection of one of their vessels, the dissection can actually kind of occlude the blood vessel lumen and reduce blood supply to the actual tissue. So that's one big one is as you kind of have blood that actually rips through the tunica intima and into the tunica media, kind of forming this like little false lumen, the collection of blood can actually bulge into the lumen and narrow it. And that can lead to ischemia and therefore infarction. Rare causes, connective tissue diseases that actually weaken the vessel wall, like Marfan syndrome, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. More likely, though, is actually going to be some type of trauma. Like, believe it or not, it could be from, like, going and, you know, coughing. It could be, like, in a motor vehicle accident. It could be, like, a chiropractic adjustment. Maybe they dissect, like, a vertebral artery. Um, there's a lot of those different types of things. Like, uh, those are big things to think about. And also, sometimes in women, they can have what's called fibromuscular dysplasia. And that's another one that can actually be susceptible to um, dissections. But those would be all, like, the pathophysiology, the causes behind someone developing an acute ischemic stroke, Rob. Did I talk too long? Not at all, Zach. You're doing a great job. This is stroke month. You got to do this uh, justice and you're doing a great job. Uh, we're going to move on now, guys. We're going to go into page, if you're following along with the notes, we're on acute ischemic stroke, page two. I'm at the top of page two. We're going to move into stroke syndromes and the symptoms by the vascular territory. So we're really gonna figure out each different type of stroke syndrome and how they clinically present and really differentiating them so you can understand that. So Zach, go ahead and take it away. Yes, yeah, so when we talk about stroke syndromes, we have like what's called the anterior circulation strokes, and this would be pretty much accounting for like your ICA, your ACA, your MCA, and then you have your posterior circulation strokes. And so we'll get into those. It's like your PCA, your vertebrals, your basilars. And so those are the big ones, but let's start off with the anterior circulation strokes. So when we talk about these, the big one, the big mamma jamma, the primary 
one that actually is the fearful one is the MCA territory stroke. And it's more commonly one that you'll see. So the MCA supplies a good chunk of the brain. It supplies like the lateral portions of the frontal, the parietal lobes. It supplies like the superior aspect of the temporal lobe. And even supplies the basal ganglia. So when we talk about this one, if you hit this one, if you occlude the actual blood flow to the MCA territory, you can really knock out a lot of brain tissue and cause a lot of neurological deficits. So what are the things that we got to be thinking about? So one of the things that can happen is there's like two divisions of the MCA as it kind of branches out after the Sylvian fissure. So these are kind of where you're getting to what's called your M3 and M4 branches. So the M3 and M4 branches, you have what's called a superior division of the MCA and then a inferior division of the MCA. The superior division of the MCA is what pretty much supplies like the primary motor cortex, your primary somatosensory cortex, your frontal eye fields, and your Broca's area. So if you knock that out, what are the things that you have? So primary motor cortex controls movement, but to the contralateral side. So if you knock that out, you have contralateral weakness. And usually that affects more of like your upper extremities, your like your upper limbs, your face, and even more of the upper part of the body trunk as well. The other thing is if you hit the primary somatosensory cortex, you're going to lose sensations to the contralateral side of the body. So you'll lose like potentially pain and touch sensations on the contralateral side of the body. And again, more so of the upper limbs, the face, and again, uh, the upper part of the body trunk. The other thing is if you hit the frontal eye fields, that controls your eye deviation, your movements, your cicadic eye movements. And if you hit um, the actual frontal eye fields, it actually causes the eye deviation to move or deviate to the side of the actual stroke territory. For example, if you stroked out your left MCA territory, the eyes would deviate to the left. If you stroked out your right MCA territory, they would deviate to the right. So they have ipsilateral gaze deviation. And if you hit the Broca's area, the Broca's area is what's basically allowing for us with the like the production of speech. And so in these patients, they have really a significant difficult time trying to be able to express what they want to. So they can develop something called expressive aphasia. So they can understand what you're telling them. They can comprehend a lot of the things that, that you're trying to tell them, but they just have a hard time being able to put that out in the world and speak that out. And so this is a really important type of thing that you can see. Generally, if you hit this territory, it's more commonly within a left MCA territory because usually the Broca's area is more likely on the left side. That's the dominant side. Um, the other thing is if you actually have, again, knock out the MCA and you prevent any blood flow going through the inferior portion of the MCA. So now you knock out the inferior division area. What does that supply? The inferior division of the MCA, right after it bifurcates out of the Sylvian fissure, it goes and supplies these things called the Wernick's area. And again, this would be more likely on the dominant side, guys. So that's important left side generally. So you'd see this more on the left MCA, just like Broca's, you see that more on the left MCA, unlikely in a right MCA. But with these, if you hit Wernick's area, this would actually cause something called receptive aphasia. So receptive aphasia is they can speak. They're fluent with their speech, but they have no comprehension. And, and, and that's a really significant thing. So they have a difficulty in being able to comprehend what you're trying to tell them. And, and, and that can also lead to a difficulty in them being able to repeat particular like speeches or phrases that you ask them to do. And so that's another one. So we call this more of a receptive type of aphasia. The other thing you can do is you can hit these things called the optic radiation. So these are basically the uh, the fibers that are coming from your actual like optic chiasma after it kind of branches off the optic chiasma. It's supposed to go to the actual occipital lobe where vision is kind of like uh, potentially becomes more conscious awareness and perception starts to occur. In this situation, if you hit those optic radiations, you're knocking out those visual fields. And usually it's the contralateral visual field. So let's say, for example, you have a left MCA stroke and you knock out the optic radiations on the left side, you're going to lose your actual fields, your eye fields on the right side. So in this case, on your right eye, you would lose more of like the lateral visual field. And then on the left eye, you would lose more of like your nasal visual field. 
And so that would be like that contralateral homonymous hemianopia that you would see in these patients. The other thing is when we're talking about the MCA territory, we kind of mentioned indirectly the uh, dominant and the non-dominant side. So like we talked about the Broca's and the Wernicke's area that are important within the dominant, the left side. But generally on the non-dominant side, which is more likely the right side, this can result in some in interesting things. And so what we see here is we can see something called apraxia. And apraxia is basically like they have difficulty being able to perform voluntary like actions, even though their motor function is actually relatively intact, but they it's a difficulty in the desire to perform a movement. Sometimes you actually see this like eyelid opening apraxia. You tell them to open their eyes and they won't open their eyes. <laughs> and so that could be one. The other thing is they actually have what's called hemi neglect. And this is an important cortical sign that you can see in these patients where they have a kind of an unawareness, if you will, of maybe specific like visual things. Like if, for example, if you stroke out the right MCA territory, they might not like, like neglect a lot of the visual in, like information on the left side of their body. So they might not even recognize that someone's standing to the actual on the side of them on their left side. Or somatic sensations, like you actually are touching both of their legs, the right and the left leg at the same time and saying, hey, which side am I touching? And they'll only say, oh, you're only touching the right side because they're completely neglecting like the left side of their body. And so that's something that you can see with these MCA territory stroke is you can see apraxia and hemi neglect, usually if it's more likely on the non-dominant side, that right side. Whew. The next thing here as we talk about the anterior cerebral artery. So the anterior cerebral artery um, or the ACA supplies like the medial portions of your frontal lobe, your parietal lobes. It uh, There is something called the recurrent artery of Hubner and that actually kind of gives off parts that actually go to the basal ganglia and the internal capsule as well. But whenever somebody actually infarcts the anterior cerebral artery, so they block off the blood flow to the anterior cerebral artery, one of the things that you can see here is that they can actually hit that primary motor cortex, more of that medial portion. And so because of that, if you knock out the primary motor cortex, obviously what are you going to see? You're going to see contralateral weakness. And so this would be more particularly because it hits that medial portion of the motor homunculus, it's going to affect the lower extremities way more than it would the upper extremities. So they'll have contralateral weakness of their lower limbs more than they would of their upper limbs in their face. I remember the motor homunculus. That that guy gives me like nightmares. <laughs> it's, it's so weird looking, man. But yeah, that's the thing I would actually go ahead and potentially take a look at that. But again, that medial portion, yeah. that's when you got like the freaky look to it where you got like the legs and then um, again on that lateral portion, you'll see more of like the upper limbs and the face and stuff like that, but freaky, but it is helpful. Yeah, it is actually kind of helpful. But the next thing here is with, we talk about the primary motor cortex, you're hitting that medial portion, same thing for the primary somatosensory portion or that cortex, you're hitting the medial portion. So you get contralateral sensory loss as well. Again, of the lower limbs more than the upper limbs. The other thing you can hit there is something called the paracentral lobule. And this kind of plays a role within a little bit of our actual like urinary function and fecal function. So sometimes you can actually develop like urinary incontinence, fecal incontinence in these situations. And the other big one that's an unfortunate one here with the ACA territory is there's a lot of executive function that occurs here. So you can actually have a lot of hitting of the prefrontal cortex and your anterior cingulate cortex. And so this can lead to things like abulia. So abulia is like a decreased like motivation to be able to perform certain types of tasks like speaking or following any kind of command. They can also even have what's called akinetic mutism. And this is a pretty significant one, especially if you hit bilateral ACA. So if you knock out both of the ACAs, so you can have what's called akinetic mutism and you can hit, hit both of your frontal lobes and they have like a severe decreased motivation to want to perform any kind of task. And sometimes they don't even have like any response to like pain. And so that's a big one as well. Uh, sometimes they can even kind of appear like catatonic. The other thing that you can hit here is what's called the anterior and superior aspect of the frontal lobe. And there's this thing that can happen with this one called transcortical motor aphasia. 
And this one's kind of like Broca's aphasia, except that they can't, they actually have an intact ability to repeat phrases. So in other words, their fluency is not intact. Their speech fluency is not intact. Their comprehension is intact. Um, but they actually have the ability to repeat particular phrases that you ask them to. And so that's one of the interesting things about this transcortical motor aphasia. But that would be, again, very specific to the ACA territory strokes. All right. So when we talk about the ICA territory stroke, one of the big things with this one is the ICA is a big, it's a huge vessel. It supplies the MCA, the ACA. So when you think about this one, if somebody actually developed like a clot, right, like a big fat thrombus or they develop an embolus within their ICA, they're not going to get blood flow to their MCA and their ACA. So they can actually develop like an MCA and ACA territory infarct. So that's a pretty massive type of stroke. So think about everything we talked about the MCA. And the ACA, they can develop a lot of those. The other thing in about maybe 5% of the patients with an ICA infarct, like territory infarct, they can actually hit their PCA territory. PCA is a part of your posterior circulation stroke. But if you have what's called a fetal PCA variant, sometimes some of the actual like emboli can actually float into the PCA territory as well and hit that PCA territory stroke. So that's another big one. The other thing with the ICA is it actually gives off. Um, some blood vessels that go to the retina. And if you actually have, again, a clot within the ICA, you actually may blood flow uh, to the retina may actually be impaired. And this can cause something called amaurosis fugax. And that's basically a transient ipsilateral, like monoocular vision loss that can actually be permanent if not treated quickly. So and Zach, you, ha- you had a, an ICA stroke in, in practice, did you not? Yeah, I had a patient who had a, um, a large ICA dissection and they ended up actually stroking out a large territory, uh, pretty much MCA and ACA territory stroke. So yeah, it was it was an unfortunate one, yeah. but not the not the fetal variant though. No, they did not have a fetal PCA variant, so we didn't actually see that PCA territory stroke. But we saw a very large MCA ACA territory stroke. It was a very very which big is one. still like very significant. Oh yeah, you, they usually when they hit that much and they end up having that much of an infarct, they have so much cerebral edema that you actually have to do like a hemicraniectomy. So. But yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that next too. <laughs> but yeah, that's one big thing with this territory stroke. It's a very scary one. The other thing is a lenticulostriate artery. So we talked about this a little bit with the MCA territory. This actually can kind of fit as a subgroup within the MCA territory stroke. So we call these like lacunar strokes or like you have like these stroke syndromes that are kind of fit within this lacunar stroke territory. And this is really right off the M1. You have those lenticulostriate arteries and they supply pretty much your internal capsule, your basal ganglia, a lot of your nucleus things as well. And so what happens is if you develop like a little clot or you develop like a, a lot of atherosclerosis of those vessels, you can actually reduce the blood flow to the actual basal ganglia and the internal capsule. And these can lead to these things called lacunar stroke syndromes. Now, these are usually like subcortical strokes. They don't actually hit that cortical area as you would like in the MCA territory stroke that's actually causing like an M1 or an M2, M3, M4, a lot of those things that we talked about. But with these, you actually have different types of lacunar stroke syndrome. So it's actually relatively important to remember these. You can have what's called a pure motor stroke, and that's where you have like contralateral weakness of the entire side of the body. You can have a sensory motor stroke, and that would actually be if you have contralateral weakness of the whole side or contralateral sensory loss or paresthesias of an entire side. You can have an ataxic hemiparesis type. So you have ipsilateral weakness and ataxia. You can also have what's called dysarthria or this thing called clumsy hand syndrome. And you develop contralateral weakness of the face, the hand, and in addition to that, dysarthria. And you can also have what's called a pure sensory stroke. So they actually develop contralateral sensory loss and paresthesia of the entire side. So these would be things that you would see if they actually cause a stroke of those small lenticulostriate arteries that actually come off the M1 or the large MCA vessel that will cause the like subcortical strokes. 
Alrighty. So next thing we're going to be doing is we're going to be moving into the posterior circulation stroke. Zach, you still good? You need some water? <laughs> yeah, I had to get a little sip of water. My palate's all dry, man, from talking forever. You're going nonstop, but a lot more to cover still. So yeah, let's go over posterior circulation strokes, about 30% of strokes. Again, these are the less common, but still important to outline. So let's go ahead and hear it. So yeah, posterior circulation strokes less common, but also something you need to respect. These are some scary, scary strokes. The posterior fossa strokes are really, really big ones that we got to talk about. So first thing, PCA territory. So the posterior cerebral artery supplies a good chunk of the brain as well. It supplies like the midbrain, the occipital lobes. It supplies like the posterior, like medial region of the temporal lobe. And it also supplies the thalamus. So if you hit a lot of those structures, think about it, you hit the occipital lobe, you actually develop what? homonymous hemianopia and that's usually on the contralateral side so again if you like knocked out like the right occipital lobe you'll lose the visual fields on the left side of the body so again on that right eye you'd lose like lose the medial like the nasal visual field and on the left eye you'd lose like the, the lateral temporal field so that's one for the thalamus if you hit that one the thalamus has a lot of motor function sensory function limbic function so you can actually develop like variable but more likely contralateral sensory loss maybe even paresthesias of the entire side of that contralateral side of the body you can develop a field cut so just like that contralateral homonymous hemianopia you can still have that if you hit like the lateral geniculate nucleus you can also have because it's controlling a lot of the sensory information that goes up to the cerebral cortex if you're getting less sensory information it can actually decrease around Sometimes it can even put a patient into a coma, especially if you knock out bilateral thalami. The other thing was with the midbrain. So if you knock out the midbrain, there's these classic like syndromes that they can let the ask on the boards. So you have what's called the Weber syndrome. Weber syndrome is basically if you actually cause strokes that involve particularly the midbrain that hits like the third cranial nerve or also hits like your um, the crux cerebri where the corticospinal tracts are running through. This can cause ipsilateral third nerve palsy and it can also cause contralateral hemiplasia. It can also cause Claude syndrome. So Claude syndrome is basically you hit that third nerve. Or you also hit like the part of the uh, red nucleus structure. And so this can actually cause ipsilateral third nerve palsy and what's called contralateral ataxia. And the last one's Benedict syndrome. It's kind of like a combo of Weber and Claude syndrome. So you can see third nerve palsy, contralateral hemiplasia, and contralateral ataxia. So we talked about what happens if you hit the occipital lobe, the thalamus, the midbrain. The next one here is what happens if you hit uh, the other portions here, which is the other vessels here. So you hit that like vertebral arteries, you cause the pica vessels to actually get clotted off. What can happen here? So the vertebral artery, you have two of them. They kind of run up through the um, the uh, transverse foramina on the sides of the actual cervical vertebrae. And when they come up, they generally will kind of coalesce together and form the basilar artery. Well, what happens is the vertebral artery will give off something that actually comes medial too, called the anterior spinal artery. And that supplies like the medial medulla. And it also gives off another vessel right as it gets ready to kind of before it kind of comes together and forms the basilar artery, it can also give up another vessel called the pica or the posterior inferior cerebellar artery. So what happens is let's say that you have like an occlusion, you have a clot, you have an embolus, you have a thrombus, you have a dissection of the vertebral artery. What could be the problems that you could see with this one? Well, let's say that you have a territory infarct from a vertebral artery occlusion or an anterior spinal artery occlusion. Think about the structures that you'll hit. Again, because it supplies primarily like the medial medulla, you can hit like your cranial nerve 12 and that's your hypoglossal nerve. So you can actually develop what's called ipsilateral tongue deviation. You can hit the medial lemoniscus. If you hit the medial lemoniscus, you can actually have contralateral sensory loss of proprioception, fine touch and vibratory sensations. And you can hit the corticospinal tracts in the pyramids if it's just before the decussation and that can cause contralateral weakness on the other side of the body. So again, contralateral weakness or paralysis. The other thing is if we actually hit, let's 
say the vertebral artery, but right off the vertebral arteries, you have something called the posterior inferior cerebellar artery that gets occluded. So you have a pica occlusion. If you occlude the pica, the pica actually supplies a good chunk of structures here. And so this can actually hit a lot of the lateral portions of the medulla and even parts of your cerebellum. Uh, like as you get ready to go into the cerebellum, like what's called the cerebellar peduncles. So if you actually have an occlusion of the pica, you can occlude the actual blood supply to what's called the inferior cerebellar peduncles. And that leads to ipsilateral ataxia. So you have a lot of impaired coordination and, and balance issues. It can also hit the nucleus ambiguous. And the nucleus ambiguous is like the cranial nerve nuclei of like cranial nerves uh, 9, 10, and 11. So this would be your glossal pharyngeal nerve, your vagus nerve, and even parts of the accessory nerve. And so in these patients, they develop like dysphagia, so difficulty swallowing, and they develop hoarseness of their voice, maybe some vocal cord paralysis, so they have like a dysphonia. They can also have diminished or absent cough and gag reflexes, and they can have a contralateral uvular deviation. They can also hit the vestibular nucleus. So your vestibular nuclei obviously control a lot of particular types of balance. And so in this situation, they can have nausea and vomiting due to like a lot of the vertigo sensations and maybe even like a, a beating nystagmus that they'll have of their eyes. The other thing that you can hit with the pica infarct is you can hit the descending sympathetic tracts. And so this can lead to what's called Horner syndrome. And so they develop ipsilateral itosis of the upper eyelid, meiosis. So their actual pupils appear constricted and they have what's called anhydrosis. And so they don't have sweating on that side of the face. So that's another thing. The other thing you can hit is if you're not hitting enough here, Rob, is the spinal trigeminal nucleus. And so this controls a lot of the actual sensory information as well of the face. And so they can develop ipsilateral loss of sensations to the face, particularly like pain and temperature. And you can also hit the spinal thalamic tracts, and that can lead to contralateral sensory loss, again, of pain and temperature sensations. So again, we talked about the PCA territory strokes, which again, hits that occipital lobe, thalamus, midbrain, and even parts like the medial posterior portion of the temporal lobe. We talked about the vertebral arteries, Again, vertebral arteries, big, big structure here. If you actually have one of the branches that comes off of it, it gets hit, anterior spinal artery. What can happen if you cause the vertebral anterior spinal artery territory infarct? Again, we hit that medial medulla. And then if you cause the vertebral artery and the branch that comes off of it that called the pica, and that actually causes an occlusion, what do you hit there? You hit like the lateral portion of the medulla and even parts of the cerebellar peduncles. Now, we move on to the monster, the scary vessel that you don't want to get occluded. And this is the basilar artery. And then the other one that's associated with it that comes off of it called the anterior inferior cerebellar artery. So the basilar artery would give off a couple branches and give off these like paramedian branches that supplies like the medial portion of your pons. It also can give off something at the top right around the level of the midbrain called the superior cerebellar artery. And it can also give something called the anterior inferior cerebellar artery that supplies like the lateral portion of the pons and even going towards the area of the cerebellum. Now, imagine that you actually have an occlusion of like the paramedian vessels off the basilar artery. What could you potentially see with this? So if you occlude those, those puppies, you can actually potentially see damage to the abducens nucleus. So you know the abducens uh, nucleus is basically controlling particularly like eye movements. And so in this situation, you can have ipsilateral loss of eye abduction or abduction, moving the eye away. So it actually kind of deviates or you actually have a medial gaze deviation in this situation. You can also hit something called the medial longitudinal fasciculus. And the medial longitudinal fasciculus is a structure that connects like your cranial nerve three, four, and six. And so you have impaired like coordinated eye movements. And so this can lead to what's called internuclear ophthalmoplasia. The other thing is you can hit what's called, and this is the, the rough one too, the paramedium pontine reticular formation. And this controls a lot of your eye deviation as well. And when you actually hit this, you have a loss of ipsilateral gaze. So then the eyes actually deviate to the contralateral side. The other thing is you can hit what's called the medial lemniscus. 
So the medial meniscus is an important structure that controls a lot of your proprioceptive sensation. And so in these patients, they lose a contralateral uh, loss of fine touch, proprioception, and even vibratory sensation. The other thing you can hit is the corticospinal tracts. And the corticospinal tracts, again, those are going to control motor movement. So you develop contralateral weakness because this is usually before like the pyramids, before they decussate. The other thing is if you actually infarct the territories that are supplied by the uh, anterior inferior cerebral artery that comes off the basilar. So if you hit those, what else could you actually see? Well, you can actually see damage to the middle cerebellar peduncles. And this is kind of like the lateral portion of like your pons. And so for this, you would actually see ipsilateral ataxia. So you'd have a loss of coordination and balance. You did their vestibular nucleus. So you can see vertigo, nausea, vomiting, a beating nystagmus. You would also hit their cochlear nucleus. And they may have decreased hearing. They may have like a ringing sensation like tinnitus. You can hit their descending sympathetic tracts, Horner syndrome. So again, you're going to see that ptosis, anhydrosis, meiosis. You can hit cranial nerve five, the trigeminal nucleus. So they lose ipsilateral loss of sensation to the face and they lose the ipsilateral corneal reflex and ipsilateral mastication muscle weakness. So the chewing muscles are weak. The other thing you can hit is the spinal thalamic tracts. So you have a loss of pain and temperature on the contralateral side. And cranial nerve five, uh, seven, the facial nucleus can get hurt, uh, hit. And it, that situation you can have ipsilateral facial weakness, but it's usually the lower part in comparison to any other areas of the face. So it's usually the lower part of that facial nucleus that gets hit. I okay. can't recommend enough, guys. Follow along with the notes because uh, <laughs> this is getting heavy. This yeah, is getting it, heavy, and I'm thankful that I have notes to follow along with. <laughs> Um, yeah, these are beast topics, man. These like stroke syndrome territories are really difficult. And it's really important that you understand these because it helps us to localize where we should be looking on our imaging, where we should be trying to be able to think about where they may have this stroke. So if you guys know the particular territory, you have your anatomy down, it'll really, really help you. Yeah, there's just so much going on. There's a lot of information to take in here. But again, we're following along here on our no acute ischemic stroke. We're on page four and uh, we're going to be heading into some watershed infarct areas. Yeah. So when Whenever you have this, like we talked about this before, the watershed infarcts, whenever you have like a global cerebral hypoperfusion from like, again, a significant like shock state or like a large carotid stenosis or like a acute hypoxemic event or cardiac arrest. In these situations, you have the regions of the brain that, again, are situated like farthest away from the like supplying blood vessels. So that means in those hyperperfusion states, those territories that are actually farthest away from the supplying blood vessels, that tissue of the brain is going to get hit super hard. And it's usually where there's kind of an anastomotic point between two vascular territories. So that's why I was talking about you'll see it generally between an ACA MCA territory or maybe somewhere between like an MCA like PCA territory. And so generally, these are very susceptible areas to low perfusion states like hypotension. So if you had somebody who had like an MCA, ACA, like a watershed zone infarct, they would have that contralateral weakness or paralysis and sensory loss of both their upper and lower extremities. So you would see both of those hit. So we actually call this like man in a barrel syndrome. So that's one of the things that you would see. If you see the MCA and PCA watershed zone infarct, they have a lot of like visual dysfunctions primarily. So you can see what's called like prosopagnosia. And this is where a patient sees objects or sees people, but he can't like make out or he or she can't make out who or what they are. The other thing is they can have homonymous hemianopia. Generally, they'll have the homonymous hemianopia and super rare, uh, but something called balance syndrome where they can have what's called simultanagnosia. So the inability to perceive more than one object at a time. So a patient will see like an individual like trees, but is unable to recognize like the entire forest. They can also have what's called optic ataxia. 
So a lack of coordination between like their visual input and the hand movements. For example, like the patient touches their, their own nose, but struggles to touch the physician or the practitioner's finger. And the other one is called oculomotor apraxia. So an inability to kind of like shift their gaze voluntarily, despite the desire and the willingness to want to do so and the complete intact function of their extraocular muscles. So those would be the big like watershed infarcts, really scary ones as well, Rob. Whew. You need a break? Ah, uh, man, maybe I'll take a little sip of water, but I'm ready to keep going, man. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep going here. <laughs> Again, guys, I'm on the bottom of page four. We're going to be moving into diagnosis now. So this is such a such a crucial part of this uh, podcast here. We're going to kind of go step by step. So really what's going to happen here is we need a, an acute workup. So a patient has stroke-like symptoms. They come in, like we talked about, time is brain. So we have a patient, you're in the ED, and you need to uh, work them up immediately. So Zach, take us through step-by-step. How do you do this? Because if, if, if you might need uh, interventions like TPA, and you're going to really need to make sure that you're on the ball here. So what is the step-by-step approach that you're going to use to someone with uh, a stroke-like symptom? Yeah. So whenever a patient comes in and they present with, again, these like stroke syndromes, which is again, really important. So again, know those, know those basic categories of an MCA territory, ACA territory, ICA territory, PCA territory, like the pica, the vertebrals, uh, specifically like with respect to the anterior spinal artery division, the ICA division, and then the basilar artery divisions. Again, know all of those really well. So if a patient comes in and they have concerning signs, a lot of the times what you'll do is you'll do something called like an NIH stroke scale. And that you usually will help us to kind of like risk stratify the patient and determine if they need something called TPA. Now, let's say that their NIH stroke scale is relatively high and we definitely appreciate some significant neurodeficits. The first thing that you could consider here is if you really want to, you can do what's called a stat non-contrast CT of the head. And really the only reason that you would do this is to rule out like an intracranial hemorrhage or like a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Because if you're going to give a patient TPA, you better make sure that they don't have a bleed within their brain because that can obviously exacerbate the situation. That'd be a bad day. That'd be a very bad day. Oh my gosh, yes, it would. The other thing is it can analyze for any like early ischemic changes that may actually warrant like more of evaluation. So let's say that you see like the classic like hyperdense, like a fresh clot within the MCA. Sometimes that can show up like really bright or like a hyperdense basilar artery and it can actually show you like where the clot is. Um, sometimes you may see like an already evolving infarct. So like a hypodensity where the tissue looks darker. Um, and that's actually kind of signs of infarction. Usually you can see that within the first like three hours of a stroke. Generally, though, if a patient comes in and they have symptoms that are concerning for a stroke, again, you think about that stroke syndrome territory. For for example, the classic one, let's say that they have like a left MCA territory stroke, that stroke syndrome category, they would have, again, like right face, right arm weakness. They may have sensory losses to the right face, the right arm. They also may have some type of potential like aphasia, so Broca's aphasia. Maybe they have also Wernicke's aphasia, so they have a combination of both of those. They have some eye deviation, so they have eye deviation in this situation to the left side, the same side as the territory of the stroke. And uh, in those situations, you're super concerned that they have a stroke. You can calculate their NI stroke scale, and then from there, you get a CT head if you want to, but generally in these patients, you go straight to a CTA, a CT angiogram of the head and the neck. One of the reasons why that's nice is because when you get a CTA, it generally gives you the dry scan. So it'll give you the non-contrast image of the CT of the head first. And so generally you kind of get those combined within the CTA. So I would generally order a CTA because you'll get the dry, like non-contrast CT of the head first. And so boom, you can rule out an ICH, a subarachnoid hemorrhage, and maybe find a hyperdense MCA or see an early hypodensity. But the CTA is the, that's a big one because what the CTA will do is it'll show you where the actual like clot is potentially. So it can show you, oh, well, we 
see that there is literally a filling defect or like a vessel cut off or like this big occlusion within the left MCA. Oh, well, there we go. We know that this patient has a stroke. We got the actual image of where the exact stroke is. We now have enough information to say that there's no ICH, there's no subarachnoid hemorrhage, and we have a definitive acute ischemic stroke that's occlusion of potentially within the left MCA. And that can lead you down to the diagnosis of a stroke. Quick question. So what happens if, do you, or really, do you care if a patient has like very bad kidney disease and you're worried about any contrast? Like, do you care in that scenario? No, no, I don't. I personally, I don't. I, th- I think it's, it's risk versus benefit in these kinds of situations. Right. Uh, like a contrast induced nephropathy. Yeah. It's potentially something that could be there, but I think that a, a stroke is something that's way more pertinent in that situation where you have to get the CTA. If it's going to alter a patient's like care at this point in time, you get the CTA. You can always run right, a CRT right. if you need to for yeah, yeah. the renal failure that you potentially can cause from the contrast induced nephropathy. But no, they need that. They need that scan. They need to get the CTA. So yeah, I would do the CTA first if their NIH stroke scale was concerning for a stroke. I'll get the CTA because it's going to give me that dry, non-contrast CT of the head as well, ruling out any ICH, ruling any subarach, maybe showing me hyperdense, and then a CTA will show me where the clot is, if there is one. The next thing that you can do if you want to continue down like the basic workup is you could order an ECG while they're there in the actual ED. Sometimes that's nice because it actually may tell you the potential cause. Like if a patient has AFib and it's not in their history, oh, well, they have a new onset AFib or flutter. Maybe that's the potential cause. Or do they have an acute MI or some type of arrhythmia? So a 12 ECG would be a good thing to get as a baseline study. The thing that you want to do is you want to check like a point of care glucose. So sometimes it's important to be able to rule out hypoglycemia because hypoglycemia can actually act like a stroke mimic. Uh, don't, but that's an important thing to make sure. Don't, uh, don't forget to order a point of care glucose. Okay. So check that they have hypoglycemia. If they do, it could be the potential cost. Don't actually necessarily not go and get a CTA, get that CTA. But again, if they have hypoglycemia, that sometimes remember that they can actually cause like a mimic of what actually is not necessarily a stroke. But the big thing here with labs is I wouldn't actually delay and order a lot of labs like the CBC and the COAGs and things like that because it can take time and time is brain. So don't delay the treatment to obtain all of these unless there is a true concern um, or, or your institution is requiring it because it's a part of their protocol. But generally, if you wanted to get a CBC, you can do that to make sure that they don't have like any severe anemia suggestive of like bleeding, which would be a contraindication to giving TPA. Um, or like if they have a severe like thrombocytopenia, like less than 100,000, that could potentially be a reason to maybe consider being cautious about giving TPA. Um, or Again, coagulation studies, if you have a patient who's taking warfarin, um, you can consider getting an INR and if it's greater than 1.7, that again could be a contraindication to TPA. But again, a lot of the times it's just going through and looking to see what would be the potential contraindications to TPA. Uh, I wouldn't really make, waste time a lot going through it, getting all these unnecessary labs of CBC and coags. I would get first thing. NIH stroke scale, CTA, you can get a 12 lead ECG as well, and a point of care glucose. This would be kind of like the basic acute workup that I would start off with. Okay, acute workup. So that's your, your go-to right away. Right. And then a little bit more longer term, how would you kind of handle that? So afterwards, after we kind of got figured out that the patient definitely has like an acute ischemic stroke from the CTA, um, we would determine their treatment, right? So where it's going to be potentially either like TPA or maybe like a thrombectomy or maybe it's no treatment whatsoever, depending upon how late on in their infarct they are. But if you're going to be working up like the etiology of the potential stroke or the risk factors that may be there, there's a lot of different tests that you can do after you get the patient, like the acute treatment that they need, which is like the TPA or the thrombectomy. 
And so what you can do is you can start off with like an echocardiogram. So a transthoracic echocardiogram, pretty much everyone's going to buy one of these when they get admitted into the hospital. Because uh, you're kind of trying to look for any kind of like, again, a cardioembolic cause. You're assessing for an atrial or a ventricular thrombus. You're looking for a vegetation on the valve. You're looking for a mechanical valve. You're looking at their EF to see if there's any low ejection fraction. Uh, you can even do these things called bubble studies where you can look for potentially like a PFO or like an atrial septal aneurysm because you can use what's called this, again, these bubble studies where you can actually look to see if you see bubbles cross from the right atrium to left atrium. You can even do transcranial Dopplers to see if you get a lot of bubbles that get hit on the actual brain with the transcranial Dopplers as well. So those would be things that you can do to look for a cardioembolic cause. Um, when you get your CTA, you can take a look at the vessels. Do you see that the aortic arch looks like it's really placked up? Does the carotids look, look super placked up? If those are the case, maybe that might be the reason for their stroke if it kind of correlates with the territory. If they have an MCA stroke and they have a huge clot within their carotid artery, or they have a lot of plaques within their aortic arch, maybe they have an artery to artery emboli for one of those situations. So look for a lot of that kind of atherosclerotic findings. Uh, and MRI is actually somewhat beneficial too, because I think one of the things with the MRI is it can tell us like the stroke burden. So it really is helpful because it can show how much of an area that we actually stroked out very specifically. Because you use what's called like that DWI sequence. And usually on the DWI, it'll show a lot of like bright areas that are indicative of potentially like area that you infarcted. And you can also utilize the ADC, the apparent diffusion coefficient, because that'll actually show the areas that are darker that correlate with the area that's bright on the DWI. And that'll kind of be again if it's dark in that on the ADC and bright in the DWI and they correlate that might actually show you the territory that they infarcted sometimes if you really want to look at a lot of edema you can use the T2 flare image as well but MRI is generally one another thing that you want to want to look at just to be able to see how much of the territory that they stroked out or maybe their exam is a little funky and it doesn't seem like a pure MCA territory stroke. They have other like weird like neurological findings and you can't make sense of them. And MRI actually may be a good thing because maybe they actually have uh, another like area that it got hit um, on their MRI that you weren't able to potentially pick up um, on your exam or on the CTA. So again, that's another thing to potentially think about. Um, if you're really trying to evaluate that cardioembolic cause again, maybe they ha you have them on inpatient telemetry and they're not showing any AFib. If you send them outpatient, you can put them on a Holter monitor. Um, that might be able to potentially pick up any like proxysmal atrial fibrillation or any flutter. Labs that you can send off and fire off whenever they're coming in is you can send off a lipid panel. That'll tell you if they have any hyperlipidemia potentially. An A1C to assess if, if they're controlled with their diabetes mellitus. You can check a TSH with reflex to assess for any like hyperthyroidism because that can actually cause AFib. Um, and if you really do have concerns for like a young patient um, who has a stroke and they, you know, potentially they have a history of DVTs and there's no other obvious etiology as a potential factor for them having a stroke. So a young one, no other kind of work things that yield a very valuable workup within a lot of their other tests you can consider hypercoagulable causes. So if you really want to go down that road of like antiphospholipid syndrome, you can check the cardiolipins, the lupus, anticoagulant, the beta-glycoproteins. If you think that they have hit because they've had heparin recently, you can check a PF4 antibodies in the serotonin release assay if you suspect hit. Um, if you think that it's due to all of those other like hypercoagulable states that I told you were relatively rare, like factor five Leiden, protein CNS, antithrombin three activity, prothrombin gene mutations, you can check those as well. Um, they're, they're not super common to lead to the arterial side, more likely that venous clot, like a cerebrovenous sinus thrombosis would be more likely what you would see. If you have like a high like yield concern for vasculitides, you can check like an ESR, CRP, like an ANA panel, check your ANCAs. 
Um, and then if you have a, a certain degree of concern, not only just for vasculitides that are due to like autoimmune diseases, you can check even for, if you think if it's an infectious lesion. So you can check like your VDRL, your RPR to rule out like syphilis. You can check like your PCRs in the serum to look for like varicella zoster virus. But again, those are relatively like rare. I would kind of focus more on getting the echo, getting your CTA, your MRI, um, some of the labs, like specifically like the lipid panel, the uh, A1C, your TSH with reflex. And then again, you can go down that route if you're super concerned about hypercoagulable stuff. Um, but that would be the things that I would start off with. Um, the other thing that's really important here is again, you need to know that NIH stroke scale. So I said that whenever a patient comes in, you, that's the first thing that you should do if you have concern for a stroke. So there's, it's a really interesting scale and it's, it usually has helped us to, to determine like stroke severity and more particularly like predict outcomes that these patients may have from the actual stroke. So there's like 11 categories that you have with this one. The score ranges from anywhere from like zero to 42. Um, there's no like strict cutoff for like IVTPA, but there's some research that suggests that if you do it, Try to potentially have an NIH stroke scale of greater than four, but I have seen patients get this when they have a stroke scale of like two. Um, but I wouldn't really waste your time memorizing these. If you actually have to use this or a lot of other like toolkits, like there's a neuro toolkit, toolkit, you can use like the MD calc. Um, but generally like utilize that when you're assessing a patient that you think has an acute ischemic stroke based upon their neuro deficits. All right, so let's briefly rewind here because we had a lot of that more long-term workup, which is also important, but I wanna go back to that situation where we're in our acute workup, I need treatment immediately, right? We keep talking about it, time is a brain. So I need uh, acute treatment. What do I have to, what needs to be done, Zach, for the for the acute treatment of a stroke? Yeah, so a patient comes in, they have like these concerning signs for a stroke, right? So you obviously see maybe a perfect category like left MCA territory stroke. Again, they have that right-sided weakness, they have the right sensory loss, they have the left gaze deviation, maybe they even have like a field cut, like a contralateral homonymous hemianopia. Um, again, some type of aphasia. It's a perfect situation. You calculate their NIH stroke scale. It's like, I don't know, 25 or whatever. Let's just say it's something terrible like that. You go ahead, you check that point of care glucose right before they go over to get a CTA. They have normal glucose. If you want to, so you can fire off a couple other labs in the meantime, but big thing is to get the CTA. You get that dry scan. You roll out an ICH, a subarachnoid hemorrhage. You potentially see a hyperdense MCA sign, but you see on the CTA, oh, there it is, a big clot in the left MCA territory. I'm good from there. Now that I've actually completely gone through that, I'll actually try to go through and get a big history for my patient quickly Hey, are you, to make sure that I don't have any contraindications to giving TPA. Yeah. So I'll go through, I'll make sure that they don't have a brain bleed, I'll make sure that they haven't had any kind of like recent like trauma or surgeries or they haven't taken their anticoagulants or antiplatelets recently, something that would be a barrier to me giving TPA that they would be at high risk of bleeding. I'll make sure that I go through my checklist to make sure that I ruled out any contraindication to giving TPA. Once I've done that, I've confirmed the actual clot within a vessel, uh, again, on the CTA. I see that they have that. I see that they have no bleed. They have no contraindications to TPA. I'll give them TPA. And so when you give TPA, TPA is a really interesting kind of molecule because it actually, it's a tissue plasminogen activator. So it increases like plasmin formation. And plasmin's an en enzyme that actually breaks down fibrin. Um, and so they lead to this increase like fibrin degradation from the clot and hopefully help to dissolve or break down the clot. And again, straightforward indications. They have an acute neurological deficit. In this case, if it's left MCA territory, they're going to have a lot of those right-sided signs, left eye deviation, et cetera, that we talked about. You also, really important here, last known well, usually needs to be within at least three hours, less than three hours, their last known well. Or if you're really going to go down this new kind of like guidelines, I said that it can actually be a last known well, you can extend it up to less than 4.5 hours if 
and only if the patient is 18 years of age or older, their NIH stroke scale score is lower than 25, there's no history of diabetes or a previous stroke, and the affected area on the CT scan is less than one-third of the MCA territory. Um, and that's a big, big thing to know here, okay? So generally, again, indications is an acute neurodeficit, Having a last known well either less than three hours or less than 4.5 hours with the criteria that we just said, no ICH or subarachnoid hemorrhage on CT, no active bleeding, no recent anticoagulation. If you've met those criteria, you can give the TPA. Generally, like it's a 0.9 milligrams per kilogram dose, and they'll give like 10% of it as a bolus, and then you'll run the remaining amount of it over like the next hour. After you give them TPA, um, generally what you want to do is get their blood pressure under control. So first, before you actually give them the TPA, you want to kind of get their blood pressure an appropriate goal. Once after you give them the TPA, you can kind of like like drop that blood pressure goal to less than 180 over 105 is actually the blood pressure goal that you're going to have for these patients. And the ways that you can like maintain this or keep their blood pressure less than 180 over 105 after they've gotten TPA is you can utilize particular types of medications like uh we'll talk about this later but something like nicardipine or labetalol or hydralazine those would be medications that would get you a good blood pressure control uh, to specifically get it to less than 180 over 105 then after you give patients tpa you have to be aware that it's a medication that could potentially um, cause bleeding and you also want to monitor the effectiveness of the drug and so you have to do very frequent neuro checks after a patient's gotten tpa generally you do like every 15 minutes for like the first hour and then every 30 minutes for the next six hours and then every hour for the next 24 hours um, after you've done that you want to actually get a ct scan about 24 hours after they've gotten tpa to just assess that there's no like hemorrhagic transformation of the ischemic infarct evaluate if there's any kind of like enlargement of the infarct or see how much of the territory that they infarcted. And maybe if they have a reason to be anticoagulated, you can say, oh, well, potentially we can go ahead and start anticoagulation here relatively soon. And so those are things to be able to consider after you've given TPA. So now that we know the indication for TPA, we know potential dosages, the monitoring after you've given TPA, which is again, blood pressure, neurotrex, and a CT scan 24 hours. Let's say that we go to the next situation here. I say that you have a patient who has a big, big, like large vessel occlusion. So what do I mean by large vessel occlusion? So you have like a proximal MCA. So generally this extends from like the M1, maybe if you're lucky to like the M2s, right? When they branch at the sylvian fissure. Um, the terminus of the ICA. So right at the end of the internal carotid artery or a clot within the vertebral or the basal artery. So again, if you have a, a big clot within the proximal MCA, the ICA terminus, the vertebrals or the basilar, you can give these patients TPA as long as they have the indications and no contraindications. And then on top of that, you want to send them to interventional radiology to get a mechanical thrombectomy. And what this is, is this really interesting procedure where they'll use like real-time imaging. They'll thread like a catheter up into the actual cerebral vessels. They'll shoot dye and they'll be able to see, oh, there it is. Let's try to be able to aspirate or remove that clot from that affected vessel. And so that's a really important thing. The indications for that is, again, one of, you have to have an LVO, a large vessel occlusion, proximal MCA, ICA terminus, vertebral basilars. And they're clotted off. The other thing is you want generally 
The last known well, you don't want it to be too far. So let's say that a patient did not get TPA. You can still do a mechanical thrombectomy. It doesn't just have to be, oh, you can only do this if they give them TPA. No, let's say that they're out of this, the actual time frame. Let's say that they have a patient who comes in with an acute neurodeficit, no ICH, no subarach, no active bleeding, no recent anticoagulation, but their last known well has been greater than three hours or greater than 4.5 hours from that specific criteria. Well, we can't give them TPA. But what we can do is take them to actual IR and do a mechanical thrombectomy where we suck that clot out. We just prefer that their last known well for that be no greater than, generally we like it to be preferred within that six to 24 hour range, but the earlier, the better. And the ways that we can potentially determine that is you can use the CT scan that they got and calculate something called an aspect score. And that kind of determines the areas that have already maybe showing signs of hypodensities or showing areas that are already starting to potentially infarct. And generally, if the score is greater than six, that they may benefit from the procedure. Or you can also use like a CT perfusion or an MR perfusion to show areas that are actually having what's called a penumbra, like a salvageable penumbra. So an area around the infarct that we can actually still save. And so those patients would benefit from getting a mechanical thrombectomy. So those would be potential indications for that, Rob. So again, I'd say the acute treatment, you have to give them TPA as long as they have, again, the indications for an acute neurodeficit, last known well that's within the time frame that we that we talked about, no ICH, no subarachnoid hemorrhage or any bleeding on the CT. Scan, no active bleeding, no recent anticoagulation. The other thing is if for whatever reason they have an LVO, if they have a last known well that's within six to 24 hours, and if they have a salvageable penumbra, it doesn't matter whether or not or they did get TPA, you can also send them to get a mechanical thrombectomy where they actually remove the clot from the affected vessel. Does that make sense, Rob? Perfect sense, man. You you done crushed it again. <laughs> so there's our acute treatment. We got the, the acute workup, the acute treatment. Beautiful. But what about now a little bit more of treatment for prevention? So, you know, not even having to do an acute treatment. Let's prevent it. So what things can we do, Zach, to prevent any stroke? Yeah. So generally after these patients have gotten like the TPA, they've gotten a mechanical thrombectomy, they'll generally be monitored in like a neuro ICU or some type of uh, in, you know intensive care unit of some form. After they've kind of gone through this, one of the big things that we have to assess is, is based upon the cause, like what was the actual reason for them developing a stroke, we should determine their long-term treatment that will prevent them from either developing another stroke. Um, and so ways that we can do that first and foremost is anticoagulation. So we need to know, do we give them anticoagulants? Do we put them on something like warfarin? Do we put them on something like a DOAC, like a Pixaban or a Rivaroxaban? Do we put them on um, a heparin drip right now until we can get them outpatient to switch over to, um, you know, bridge them to a warfarin or a DOAC? Um, for long-term control. And so whenever you're considering anticoagulation, you have to think about what's the reasons. Well, generally it would be because a patient has atrial fibrillation and now they develop a stroke or they have a left ventricular or left atrial thrombus. Now they developed a stroke or they have a mechanical heart valve and they weren't anticoagulated for it. Or they have CHF with a reduced ejection fraction where their EF is like 10% and it's in the pooper. Um, <laughs> or they have like, oh, you know, or they can have like a cerebrovenous sinus thrombosis. Um, and that's actually an interesting topic. We'll talk about that in another lecture, maybe, uh, but, or another podcast, but these can actually develop what's called venous infarcts. And in those patients, they would actually definitely require anticoagulation. Um, and then sometimes if you have like a hypercoagulable disorder, like one of those like situations like malignancy or catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome or, or HIT or something of that nature. So. 
Those would be the anti- indications. Now, again, generally in these patients, we can start off with like a heparin drip or you can do something like, like Lovenox as, as kind of like a bridge uh, to warfarin or like a DOAC long term, uh, just because heparin is like really easy to titrate whenever you're in a hospital. Um, but warfarin is generally like going to be one of those that after you kind of titrate them to get them within a therapeutic range with heparin, you switch them over to a long term one like warfarin or like uh, a DOAC, like a Pixaban, Rivaroxaban. Warfarin is generally superior to DOACs when it comes to like patient having like a mechanical valve um, or they have have like AFib secondary to like mitral stenosis, you should start them on warfarin. Um, but if they don't have that, they don't have a mechanical valve, they don't have like a mitral stenosis, um, you can actually consider like a DOAC, like a Pixaban, Rivaroxaban. And that's actually nice because you don't have to like monitor their INR like weekly that you would on a patient with a warfarin. So that's a really important thing. Um, one of the things I think that's important to remember though, is that there is certain situations where you'd want to hold anticoagulation for a patient, even if they do have the indication for it. Let's say that you have a patient who has AFib or a mechanical heart valve or they have CHF with a reduced ejection fraction and you want to start anticoagulation on them relatively soon because they're at risk for developing a stroke, you may want to consider holding it for a couple different reasons. One, is if a patient has infective endocarditis, um, and that's a cardioembolic cause of actually developing a stroke. In those situations, you probably want to want to give them anticoagulation that could definitely lead to a bleed. Um, and so those patients, you want to treat the underlying cause, the infective endocarditis, treat the septic emboli. Um, the other th- reason why I would be very, very careful considering anticoagulation is if they had a very large hemispheric stroke. Um, so let's say that for this patient that we kind of use as an example, let's say they stroked out most of their entire left MCA territory. So knocked out a good chunk of their frontal lobe, their parietal lobe, parts of their temporal lobe, even parts of their basal ganglia, all of that stuff got knocked out. In those situations, if you start them on anticoagulants within uh, maybe like a couple days after that TPA, they're at super, super high risk of infarcting, uh, uh, converting that actual infarcted territory all into a bleed. So causing hemorrhagic conversion or transformation. And that's a super scary thing. And so in these patients, we particularly want to wait to start anticoagulation for maybe like two weeks to four weeks, sometimes even a couple months. It really just depends upon the patient. But that would be the indications potentially for anticoagulation is, again, knowing the uh, if they they have AFib, a left atrial or left ventricular thrombus, a mechanical heart valve, heart failure with a reduced EF, supervenous sinus thrombosis with a venous infarct, or hypercoagulable disorder. Now, the other things that you want to consider is, do they need antiplatelets? So do they need like something like aspirin or pla- uh, clopidogrel, um, also known as Plavix or, uh, you know, ticagrelor, et cetera. So in those situations, it could be post-stroke. Um, if a patient has like a lot of like thrombi, uh, like potentially a lot of risk factors for thrombi, they have like big plaques. Let's say that they have like a, a plaque within like the MCA territory. They have, a, they have a plaque within the vertebral artery. They have a plaque within their basilar artery. And it definitely seems like it's due to atherosclerosis. In those situations, you could actually put a patient on antiplatelets, something, for example, aspirin or maybe even clopidogrel. Um, and usually these are for your non-embolic strokes. You can do like maybe 24 to 48 hours after having the stroke. Um, and I say one of the reasons for this is, again, post-stroke due to like a thrombotic kind of cause, a plaque. Or um, one of the other big reasons is they have like a stent. So if a patient has like coronary artery disease and they have a stent within one of those, or they have like a carotid stenosis and you put a stent in there, those would be particular reasons I would consider antiplatelet therapy like aspirin or clopidogrel, or maybe even both if they have a stent. And it's within like, it's, it's a fresh one. The other thing is um, 
a percutaneous closure of like a PFO or an atrial septal defect. If you have a patient who's like less than 60 years old, they have cryptogenic strokes. It actually may be beneficial if they have that paradoxical emboli as the cause of their strokes. You can actually do what's called a percutaneous closure of their PFO or their atrial uh, like septal aneurysm. The other thing is if they have like a carotid stenosis, if like a really, really significant carotid stenosis that's actually causing their stroke symptoms. Um, this situation, you can do something called a carotid endarterectomy. So where you can actually literally go in and cut the plaque out of the carotid artery. Uh, the indications I'd say for this one is if they're like having a symptomatic carotid stenosis and their stenosis is like greater than 70%. Sometimes you can do it if they're, if they have carotid stenosis less than, less than 70%, um, but they're symptomatic. And if they're an older male, they, they may actually be a benefit to doing the carotid endarterectomy. So that'd be one reason is you're trying to revascularize the carotids with a carotid endarterectomy. Or if maybe the patient is at super high risk of developing periprocedural complications from doing a carotid endarterectomy, you can do a stent into that. But again, they'll require aspirin and Plavix for about a year, and then you can switch them over to something uh, like aspirin as on its own or Plavix on its own. But those are the two options to be able to revascularize the carotids is a carotid endarterectomy, um, high-risk procedure though, and our carotid artery stent, which would be better, less procedure, periprocedural complications. All right. The other thing is just modifying a lot of their risk factors. So if they have hypertension, it's trying to be able to get them on antihypertensives and optimize that to a blood pressure goal of like less than 130 over 80. If they have diabetes, it's trying to have a better way of managing their diabetes. So trying to be able to give them insulin, anti-diabetic medications, optimizing their diet to get that A1C less than 7%. If it's due to hyperlipidemia, they have like an LDL that's like through the roof, like Rob here. Um, <laughs> Try to aim for a lower LDL. I'm working on it. (laughs) It's a work in progress. That's right. That's right. But if we're trying to be able to do that, giving them something like a statin um, and then dietary changes exercise to be able to um, get that LDL to an appropriate level. Um, And also if they smoke, smoking cessation. And again, if there's like obesity as a factor, um, weight loss is going to be key here. So those would be a lot of the things that we can use to try to be able to prevent future strokes, Rob. All right. So let's transition into complications. We're almost there, Ninja Nerds. We have a little bit left to go, but you're almost at the finish line. This has been a monster of a topic. Zach, why did you pick this one again? Oh, man. It's stroke stroke month, It's stroke month. You're right. It's stroke month. Yeah, we got to do something that's, you know, definitely make awareness to this. This is a very serious disease and you can cause a lot of like problems for these patients. And so it's definitely important to be able to be aware of uh, this disease, to be aware of ways that you can potentially prevent this disease and being able to be aware of how to recognize this and treat it effectively so that you can reduce a lot of the complications and negative uh, side effects and devastating effects that you can see from this disease. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, it's just even for the lay person or the, the clinician, I mean, it d- doesn't matter. You can always brush up on it. It's a super, super important topic. Uh, so let's go into complications, Zach. Let's talk a little bit briefly about what can happen and I'm sure you've had this happen to you in practice. And uh, let's just have a quick little uh, discussion on that now. Yeah. So um, complications that you can see with these uh, acute ischemic strokes, one of the big ones um, is a lot of the cerebral edema. So you can get like cerebral edema to the point where the intracranial pressure really, really jacks up. Um, The ones that I particularly would say that you would see these in the most commonly is your like posterior circulation strokes. So if you have like a, like a vertebral or basilar artery occlusion and you end up stroking out a large territory of your brainstem and your cerebellum, those, especially the cerebellum, there's very little space in the posterior fossa. And as you stroke out that area, you cause something called like cytotoxic edema. So you infarct the tissue, the tissues die. It causes a lot of what's called cytotoxic edema, uh, edema, and that increases the pressure in that area and starts pushing on things nearby. And if you think about that, think about like someone having a lot of like a cerebellar stroke. 
you're compressing on the brainstem. And if you compress on the brainstem, you can definitely lead to a decreased level of arousal. The patient can then herniate. So there's a lot of very, very, very scary problems with those strokes, like the posterior circulation strokes. So that's one thing. The other one is if they have a very large, like MCA territory stroke. So if like, for example, our patient that we presented here that has a large, like F, uh, left MCA territory stroke and they stroke out a large, large portion, they're going to have a very significant amount of cytotoxic edema, a lot of like shifting from that left side to the right side. It's going to start trying to push onto the brainstem and herniate the actual brainstem and herniate some of the actual brain tissue out through the foramen magnum. Um, and that's a scary thing. And so, in these patients who are at risk of cerebral edema or elevated ICP, I would be on high alert in those patients who have a large MCA territory stroke or a posterior circulation stroke, like a vertebra basilar uh, kind of stroke that hits a large part of their cerebellum. In those situations, their treatment options is very straightforward. You have to be able to decompress these patients. If they're at super high risk of being able to herniate, um, one of the big things is to be able to pop the top right? you know, or, or pop the back in the case of like a, a, a posterior circulation stroke. So you need to like remove this skull because you'd rather have the brain herniate through that skull defect that you pull off rather than down onto their brainstem and out through the foramen magnum. So that's one of the big things is a decompressive hemicraniectomy. So, for example, if you have like a large left MCA territory stroke, they may take the bone off of that left MCA territory area so that you can allow for that brain tissue to swell outwards through that. Or they may pop the actual uh, back part, like the occipital bone area where the uh, portion of the uh, cerebellum is so that that can actually swell outwards rather than push onto the brain stem and then again lead to herniation. So those would be the big things. Now, in the interim, if you have a patient who hasn't been able to get the hemicraniectomy just yet, for whatever reason, or they're actively herniating, um, what you can do is you can try to be able to provide medical therapies just until they get the decompressive hemicraniectomy. And so very simple things, uh, keeping the neck midline to allow for proper venous drainage from the jugular veins, um, elevating the head of the bed to, again, allow for gravity to pull the actual blood down through the jugular veins, because again, it's less blood within the actual <laughs> the brain, uh, less pressure. So again, think about, it's called like the Monroe Kelly doctrine, that within the, the skull, there's blood, there's brain, and then there's the cerebral spinal fluid. So if we think about that, if we try to be able to reduce some of the blood within the brain by having good venous drainage, that might actually be able to reduce some of the pressure inside of the skull, the intracranial pressure. So we keep the neck midline, elevate the head of the bed 30 degrees. And then big thing is try to reduce a lot of the pain and agitation. So that's one thing. The other thing is we can try to be able to sedate the patient. Um, and generally this may require intubation. Um, if the ICPs are not controlled and, and, and you need, and you're not actually meeting it with the supportive measures. And so what you can do is you can put something like, um, people are what's called propofol. Uh, propofol is a sedative agent that can actually like decrease the basal metabolic rate. And, and then again, reduce your cerebral blood flow to the brain. And that can actually reduce the actual ICP. Um, and so that's an important thing uh, that you can have in these situations. Generally, the other thing that we can try is something called hypertonic agents. So we can give them medications like uh, 23.4% hypertonic saline if the emergent ICP crisis occurs. Um, generally, you need to do this with like a central line. Um, or you can give things like mannitol if you don't have like a central line present and you only have like a peripheral IV that you can push it through. You can give them like 25% mannitol, um, like 50 to 75 grams of that if they have an emergent ICP crisis. Um, sometimes, sometimes some people even say that you can try a prophylactic, like if you expect that they're going to swell. Usually if a patient has like a large MCA territory infarct or a large like posterior circulation stroke, the peak time when the edema gets really 
really, really bad is like three to five days after they infarct. So sometimes you may start patients on like a prophylactic um, uh, hypertonic saline infusion, like a 3%, and then titrate that to a goal of like 150 to 155 because what you're trying to do is suck some of the fluid out of the cells and decrease the size of the brain tissue so that it actually reduces the ICP. Um, but there's a lot of literature that maybe doesn't necessarily completely support that option. And rather the acute crises are better treated with like 25% um, mannitol or the 23.4% hypertonic saline rather than putting them on a prophylactic infusion. But that's a scary complication that I often see, Rob, is the cerebral edema, the ICP crises from like the large territory infarcts like an MCA or like a posterior circulation stroke where they stroke out a large territory of their cerebellum and it's just not having much space and it starts pushing on the brainstem and they're at high risk of herniation. But, That's very scary. Yeah, it is pretty scary in those situations. But the other thing I would say to be also very, very alert for is when a patient gets TPA, they obviously have a risk of bleeding, um, hemorrhagic conversion. That's why when we, whenever they get TPA, they or they get the thrombectomy, um, TPA and the thrombectomy, they come back or they go to an ICU unit because they need to get very, very frequent neuro checks. Um, so if at any point in time their neuro exam changes, like let, let's say that, for example, their NIH stroke scale score, let's just use this as an example. It was like, um, I don't know, 20. And then all of a sudden their exam changed and now it went from 20 to 24. Uh, so they had a worsening score change. Something happened and you don't know what that exact thing is. One of the things I would consider is that they converted the actual infarct or they have like a hemorrhagic conversion. So now they're bleeding and that could be from the TPA that they got. And so suspect that if you have like an acute neuro change. Um, so one of the big things to do is just get a CT because you'll be able to see blood. Um, so if you get a non-contrast CT scan, it'll show you that, oh, there it is. They, they stroked out their left MCA territory and we gave them TPA and then boom, they bled into that actual area. So in those situations, you stop the TPA if it's still running. Um, and if they've gotten TPA like within the last like 12 to 24 hours, you can consider trying to reverse the TPA. And so you can give things like tranexamic acid. Um, so it's basically going to prevent a lot of that fibrinolysis anymore. Um, and then sometimes if you don't have access to TXA, you can consider things like cryoprecipitate, uh, which is basically fibrinogen. So you're trying to be able to give them fibrinogen because they're breaking down fibrinogen. Um, and sometimes platelets, if they're actually consuming a lot of their platelets can be utilized. But TXA is kind of the first line. Um, sometimes other uh, institutions will say cryoprecipitate plus platelets. But that'd be for the hemorrhagic conversion. I'd be very scared about that one if I see like an acute neuro change. Um, the other thing is like angioedema. This one's not, not super common. I haven't actually seen it. Um, some of the actual team members that I work with, I, I said that they have seen this. Um, so sometimes what happens is you can actually give somebody TPA and they can actually develop like very severe angioedema, like a super like insane allergic reaction where they develop swelling of their lips. But more, more scary is the larynx. Um, and they can actually have a massive amount of laryngeal edema where they have like this strider. So they're having difficulty being able to bring air in because their larynx is so swollen they can't bring air in. And so they'll start actually developing like a severe strider and hypoxia and respiratory distress. Um, and it's due to the TPA. And so in those situations, I, you know, I would not hesitate to intubate these patients because the longer you wait, uh, the more swollen that actual larynx gets, it's going to be difficult to put a tube down through that area. And then you end up with like an emergent, like, you know, Craig, Craig, uh, that you'd have to do. So in those situations have a low threshold to intubate the patient, um, if they're not already, and then start like antihistamines and IV steroids and things like that to be able to reduce the inflammation. Um, 
The other complication that you can see with these strokes is because you damage. So think about it. Your cortical neurons are the areas that fire electrical like action potentials. And so if you cause like a damage from an, like you have an ischemic infarct to a particular area, like an MCA territory, an ACA territory, a PCA territory, whatever, it's hitting the cortex. So you're actually having a cortical infarct. You damage the tissue of that cortex. And then some of the nearby neurons may actually be super agitated. And you can actually have this focus of like an epileptogenic potential. And so that area that's actually ischemic and actually injured can now potentially become a focus for seizures. And so let's say that, for example, you had like a left MCA territory stroke and some of those neurons in that area start becoming agitated and start leading to focal seizures. So then you start actually having like twitching of your right side, your right arm, your right face, your right leg. You start having eye deviation to the contralateral side. You might start seeing seizures. And so that's an important thing to be able to realize. And in these patients, that's when we would start the antiepileptics. You don't generally just like prophylactically start them on antiepileptics unless you see evidence of seizures because there's just been no research to say that it's beneficial to prophylactically treat them. So that's one thing we would actually consider. And you can do things like levetiracetam, also known as Capra or Valproate, known as Depakote or Phosphonatoin as well. Um, sometimes, uh, if you get like a really bad stroke though, they don't actually show like weirdly enough, Rob, they don't actually show maybe focal seizures. They may actually present with what's called non-convulsive status epilepticus where they don't even seize at all. And, and like visibly, they're not having this twitching movement. They're not causing, um, like their arms to move like in a, this kind of like seizure like pattern. Instead, they're just like super hypoactive. They're not really kind of like trying to communicate. They're not really following commands. They just look super out of it and it doesn't correlate with what their stroke should be. Um, and so if you see someone that's actually just like super out of it, their exam is terrible. It doesn't make any sense. You should be concerned about a non-convulsive status and that that's going to lead you to potentially get like an EEG um, to see if they are in like this non-convulsive status. And then you, again, you could treat them with antiepileptics. I think the other thing that's important to think about with these patients who develop strokes is is they can develop with these large territory strokes, especially the MCA territories or the posterior circulation strokes that controls a lot of the uh, cortical bulbar fibers, the things that control your actual like swallowing mechanisms, your deglutition. These patients can have very significant dysphagia. Um, so difficulty in being able to swallow. They can also maybe have difficulty in being able to clear secretions. So if they have this dysphagia and they have alterations in their ability to control food or fluids accidentally or improperly going down the larynx into the trachea, into the lungs, forming a big old area of food that now can lead to a massive amount of inflammation and infection, they're at high risk of kind of what's called aspiration pneumonia. And so Usually we try to be able to weed this out when a patient comes into an ICU and they're a little bit more stable. We can actually do like these speech evaluations um, to make sure to see, does this patient actually have the proper intact ability to eat or drink particular fluids or are we going to hold off on that and they might require a feeding tube for a little bit of time until they start to improve and so that's something that we may want to do to be able to prevent them from aspirating um, and if they do sometimes if they have aspiration generally you try not to treat these patients with antibiotics empirically until they start showing concerning signs like hypoxia consolidations or opacifications in their chest x-ray and high white counts and respiratory distress and things like that then maybe you'll start 
antibiotics and sputum cultures and to try to be able to narrow those antibiotics down. But that's some of the other things and complications that you can see um, with these patients. But uh, other supportive measures should also be done. Again, good glycemic control as well, good blood pressure control, everything that we talked about before to be able to prevent a lot of the uh, issues that we can see with a patient developing a stroke, the complications of a stroke. And again, I think this is a really, really scary, very important disease that we have to be able to talk about, really know, be able to recognize, be able to treat. And I, I think if we can, I think that we're going to become really good clinicians with this. And so I, I hope that you guys enjoyed this. Uh, I think it's a good kind of thing to throw out there during during stroke month. So I couldn't agree more. Really, really important topic. It's a monster of a topic, but there's a good reason for it because there's a lot of things going on. It was funny. I actually, when we when we started this, Zach's like, oh, we're just doing the ischemic stroke. I'm like, no, why can't we do it all? Let's do, let's do ischemic. <laughs> let's do hemorrhagic. And he goes, do you want to be here for five hours? Yeah, that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. Yeah. We'll have to keep another podcast for it, like intracerebral hemorrhage. That's going to be a whole nother day. <laughs> but it'll, it'll be a lot of fun regardless. And uh, we're going to make sure to, to hit each topic here. So again, is, uh, May is stroke month. I hope you all enjoyed that one. Um, again, we were using the notes here. I, we followed along with our acute ischemic stroke notes the entire time. Um, if you're struggling at all, you can go back, you can check things out, you can keep reading them over and you can follow along with us. And that's the whole point of why we're doing this. So we really do hope that it helps you. Uh, and, and again, I, I, I think with that, uh, uh, Zach, any closing thoughts? No, man, there's no way I'm going to be able to recap all the strokes, but <laughs> no, no way, no way. I, I think one of the big things is to know your stroke syndromes. I think that's a very, very important thing to be able to know. Um, and then again, knowing the indications for acute treatment, what you need to do right away. Um, and then again, knowing those preventative factors and complications that you can see with a patient who has an acute ischemic stroke. But uh, engineers, I really hope that you guys enjoyed this topic. I hope that you guys learned a lot and uh, I hope it kind of shed some light onto this disease. And engineers, thank you for always being so awesome, so supportive. And as always, until next time. Mm-hmm.